first thing I want to do before we go into any of the nitty gritty details of the work that you've done is just to find out how you started in photography. So what was it that drew you in um, and what was the, the early inspiration for you becoming a photographer? So yeah, uh, tough opening question, but good one. Um, I studied late. Um, I went traveling, uh, missed my GCSEs, didn't do A-levels, blah, blah. I uh, did some work for four years, went traveling. And then during the travel, there was this thing called media studies, which I know everybody's known about for like the last 15, 20 years. But it it showed, you know, everyone that I was meeting was just having a break from media studies. And it showed me that I could study something creative that would be fun and that I'd learn from. So um, did media studies, um, got a diploma in that and then went to study making films um, and it's kind of taught me like a science so I switched and they didn't let me into the second year of of journalism because they didn't I didn't obviously have any qualifications at all no GCSEs or anything and then I started the first year of journalism and I specialized in photojournalism and that got me hooked into taking pictures and I was in the labs more than most of the photography students. And I was fortunate enough to have a lecturer who was extremely passionate about photography and social commentary in particular. And I think I, um, I grew up around you know, various kinds of um, isolation and poverty and things and just showed me, um, I think... Uh, <laughs> My heart, certainly at that time, was around social commentary. And from there, I soon began to realise it was very difficult to make money and a living as a photojournalist. But I was still, I suppose, much like yourself, looking at your work, Chris, I was interested in shooting people and also, um, you know, models shooting for their books, you know, portfolios and just to get experience. And so from there, I just sort of fell in love with that side of things. But I was in, I'd moved to Sheffield at the time and I really wanted to make it work in Sheffield. But the industry is so London centric. And I tried for, I was in Sheffield for 10, 11 years. Um, and when I was getting bigger work, it was down in London. So I moved to London, but I contacted a guy called Andrew O'Toole, who was an Australian photographer. And we spoke, it was English time about two or three in the morning to, you know, obviously there 10, 11 hours ahead. And we got on really well. We met for a cuppa and he was kind enough to have me along for some of his shoots. So every two or three months for four or five years, I caught the train down and slept on friends, sofas and floors just to assist him for those four or five years. And, and it was great. He sh taught me a lot, showed me a lot. Um, and I'll always be very grateful to him for that. And that was my sort of, that's how I got into photography. So roundabout way of starting off with the love of social commentary, but now not exactly going full circle, but I'm bringing the documentary side more into what I'm doing um, because I am moving into or have moved into making films as well. So that's a very filtered um, bullet point version. So feel free if there's anything that sticks out there that you're interested in. Well, obviously the fact that it's very London-centric centric stands out because I think that's something that people go back and forth on. There's the idea that obviously the internet has changed the media side of things and that you can do anything from anywhere. But I, I've, I've yet to meet anyone that's really been able to carve out a particularly big section in the market for themselves commercially without having to be at least relatively local to London. Sure. I, I completely agree. But it's interesting. I think if you've made a solid enough inroad and career um, earlier, I'm, I'm 46 now. Um, I didn't get going in photography till I was... 30 and then got into beauty around mid-ish 30s, late 30s, mid-late 30s. So uh, the bigger guys in the industry, I think they can be anywhere. They can certainly make it in some of the big cities, whether it's London or New York. I know people in Paris as well, and then they can move out. But I came into it 
later, and obviously with the explosion of digital, which did change the landscape of photography significantly. And I want, like I said, I, I had two studios in Sheffield and they were huge. They were warehouses. They were great. But the, the industry, I thought I could make it up there, like I said, but the industry just dictated to me. And so I chanced it. I didn't have any clients. I came down here and reshot my portfolio in a warehouse in Hackney with someone that was kind enough just to give me his space for the day for a hundred quid. So I got in various teams, reshot it and knocked on lots of doors, but it was extremely tough um, and long. But, you know, I think there is something about London and people want me here for, to be out, you know, I shoot a lot for a brand called Tony and Guy. I do their, you know, their international campaigns and, and I love working with them to bits. And it's a very, very full on gig. It's not just about turning up on the shoot days. There's a lot of, you know, there's castings, there's prep, there's meetings where, and so I can just bomb into, you know, Tottenham Court Road, their academy in 25, half an hour. And I think clients like me being on the doorstep. Um, so yeah, I don't necessarily agree with it, but the industry dictates that you kind of need to be London centric, I think. Well, speaking about shooting commercially, what was your what was your first experience of you being the primary shooting uh, for a commercial campaign or a commercial job? Oof. I was still at uni when I got paid my first gig. So I studied in Southampton at what would be like the the Institute Polytechnic, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then the university where all the highbrow people were hired me to shoot a campaign for them, which was great. And then also I got hired to shoot something for a, a hotel chain or their rooms and, you know, section of their hotel. It was back in the day where I, you know, I, I borrowed some lights from uni where I was studying and they didn't have, I'd, I'd never used them before. And I shot it all on film and I went down to Sainsbury's every hour and did the emergency hour service just so that I could keep a, you know, track on that. I was getting the right pictures. They were coming mm. out. So I didn't have Polaroids. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing when I was at uni. I was fine on the street um, and, you know, shooting demonstrations. I did various personal projects um, that involved pretty hardcore situations, but not with studio lights. So the first commercial gig like that was in a hotel with lights on my own setting everything up and i just made sure like i said i went down to the hour processing just to check the imagery well something that i see holds a lot of people back and i'm definitely guilty of this is feeling like you have to know everything before uh, you can kind of take take your first paid gig or your your first step into the commercial world is it about kind of learning on the job as much as it is about being as prepped as possible yeah of course that's a tough question <laughs> yeah, I still feel like you know learning on the job, learning from. I have a very good team of assistants, but I know what I want, how it needs to look, and I also know how to work with the client. But I do think in the early points, there's a fine balance between knowing your limitations to not say um, yes to any gig at all because you know you, you can and you will be found out if it's not to a certain point but there's absolutely and i should have started with the, the true bit and the positive bit really uh take it um even if it's you know going to be stressful and things just chat to the person um and just say yeah we can do it and in this day and age crikey you know everything's on so much is on youtube or you get someone in who does know more than you and as i've learned um when i first moved to london which was what i don't know about eight ish nine ish years ago i got hold of fortunately a very good assistant who was um first in a fashion photographer called miles aldridge at the time and he came over to me and we were working together for three or four years and i learned a lot from jim um, Jim taught me how to basically let a bit of control, uh, out, let him deal with some of the lighting and some of the setups. But so I don't know in answer to your question, I, nine times out of 10, I say, go for it. No matter what, 
but be very, very clear on what the deliverables are from from Mm. the job in terms of whether it's five beautifully retouched images or 25 beautifully retouched images. Because if it's 25, you're going to be locked down for a week or two. If it's five, it's manageable. Um, And just, yeah, I, I mean, digital completely changed the playing field for everybody. And I think the fact that you can, you know, I know photographers that don't even meter and things on, on shoots because they just check it digitally. So, you know, there are tools that you can go in. But I think what's good, and it depends what level you want to be shooting at. Um, whew, you know, I know some of my clients, I do stuff with L'Oreal and things, and you know, but that's taken years to be able to shoot for those guys. And they obviously wouldn't come anywhere near me when my portfolio wasn't up to scratch and I think you know I think in this day and age you'll only get approached early days if you're if there's something in your portfolio that people want and that that's what's key well on that on that front when you were coming up sort of in the journey to where you are now and even to this day who do you go to for opinions on your work and critique because we live in the age of everyone having an opinion and constantly flaunting it on social media that you know i think photographers tend to be fairly damning towards each other it's not sometimes maybe the most social thing we're not particularly nice to each other when it comes to talking to strangers at least that's my experience and what i see being posted by other people who do you go to who do you trust to tell you whether or not you're on the right path or whether something's a cool idea or it's not working i follow my voice my inner voice as much as possible but again you have to bounce certainly ideas in their early stages or also various picture taking with so i have a i've worked with a few consultants over the years because i don't have an agent and these are consultants who are agents or art buyers and things so they they know what's current and relevant and then also i have two or three well probably yeah just maybe one at the moment particular photographer who shoots slightly similar field to me but he's i really respect his opinion um and it's keeping it not too many people it's certainly not going open online to critique or posting on facebook and believing what people write or instagram and things it's just keeping your sources of clarification really really tight and people that you trust and I've just really learned that you just can't tick all boxes with everybody and just, you know, press on. And, and um, I think we've all got, you know, we've all got the same kit. We've got the same, you know, cameras, lighting, blah, blah, same lenses, whatever it is. But it's how you choose to approach that subject that does make us different. And, but that, that's one thing being at uni taught me is it takes about five years to really craft your eye into how to look at form, shape, rhythm. Um, and that's something you learn yourself, but also bouncing with trusted people is, is, is crucial. And portfolio reviews, um, you know, like the, I mean, the AOP, Association of Photographers, um, and I've been to various portfolio reviews over the years, and, but, and myself, I'm now um, reviewing um, portfolios for photographers and things. So I think it's just having, you know, it only needs to be two or three people any more than that. And I think, you know, you're just getting too many different opinions. Um, it's a good question. I, I'm working with an in-house agent at the moment and I sent us 12 pictures of a personal shoot. And one of the pictures I absolutely loved, um, she didn't like. And she explained to me why she didn't like it. And that was actually one of the reasons why I've included it because it's to do with um, a, a certain kind of rawness and an honesty. So, you know, even that way where we really understand each other, but there's still differences of opinions. So, I, but I, do you know what? You've also got to not be the kind of photographer who just thinks that you're always right because, you know, you ain't, you ain't going to make it. You, you know, you have to be... I mean, the, the, the day and age of having David Bailey's run the, run the, you know, the industry, they're gone. You know, we've got, we're, we're in a sort of, I guess we're a service in a way. We're, 
we need to be fulfilling the brief for the client and we, you know, we, with our picture taking, we need to know how to achieve that. And that's really important. Okay. Well, on that front, um, as someone that definitely has no idea about this, but I've spoken to a few people, especially over the last few weeks through the podcast, what, what is it actually like working for big name clients for big brands? Is it a very pressured thing or is it something that you just become sort of acclimatized to and it just feels like another day at work? I think working with the different kinds of brands um, and different sizes, there is always, you know, uh, a, a buzz of a nervousness. And I think if ever I lost that, then that's, that's time to throw the towel in um, because at the end of the day, we're often dealing with pretty big budgets, sometimes into hundreds of thousands of pounds because of the, you know, the models involved, um, the kit, the usages. We go out to Hamburg and we shoot there. Um, for, you know, sometimes four or five days, a lot, you know, there's a lot of money involved. So I think the pressure is always there because they're often big projects and I've been involved in the casting and I'm obviously involved in the post-production and clearly I'm involved in the actual shoot days. So there, there's, there's a huge amount of pressure, but I thrive, you know, I thrive on that pressure and I, I think it, um, it's really exciting because, I get the pictures that are needed that we sign off in our meetings that we need to capture certain looks um, and certain positions and things. And then if I've caught it, I'll just say to the client, look, can I just have two minutes on my own with the model um, and maybe the hairdresser to slightly change the hair or the fashion stylist try a different outfit on or a necklace or just the model. If, if, I, if I know the model and want to try a couple of things out, then... I think the pressure of it being a commercial gig can be made once we've got those particular pictures, the, the, the fun element can come in once we've got those pictures. And invariably, that's often the pictures that they end up choosing because there's just something there that is just a bit more fluid. What kind of say do you have in terms of the models for campaigns when it comes to commercial jobs? Do you have any say at all or is it just who you're given? Um, really varies. Some clients want me involved with every stage, which includes the casting and the model choice. I shoot a lot of hair. So often the clients are primarily looking at the hair, but I'll look at the, their book so that, and if I'm seeing them face to face and we're down to like, you know, third or fourth casting and it's, um, we're on the selects, then I'll just, you know, I'll have my camera along and do just a couple of pictures of them on the side. So that I get a, you know a vibe for their energy, and if we've got to get ten pictures in one day, and the model is just you know really up for it, got you know great ideas and just that whole energy, then then Bosch, you know, she'll go or he will go really high up the rankings. Whereas if they're doing the normal modelly kind of things, and um, you don't think that you're going to get what the brief needs, then I will tell the client, um, you know, I'll be very diplomatic. We won't do it in front of the, the model, but we will meet up afterwards, and I'll I will suggest as strongly as I can which way we, we kind of need to go with certain models and why, because there are reasons. With things like Instagram and the sort of universal availability of websites and the cost of cameras coming down and down and down, sort of photography itself being more democratized, do you feel like the value of being a photographer is dropping? Yes and no. Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. The proliferation of imagery is um, But that was always the case. Uh, Imagery Mm. is the most omnipotent thing around you know more so than tv radio um pictures but yeah i think images are everywhere but what's really interesting is i'm starting to use film by what by film i don't mean you know shooting video and things i mean like 120 film or 35 and that's making me feel quite different about what i'm doing because the I was always in the camp of, look, I'm happy in a digital darkroom, partly because I need to be commercially, but also I think you can get 
very close to the feel of film. But actually, I've been in the last six months. I've been shooting various film stocks, and it's jaw dropping the the difference it's brought to my work. How so? Um, I suppose the use of film for me um, and shooting uh, beauty. I'm seeing more skin tones. I'm seeing more depth. And I also feel my portfolio can sometimes be quite quite clinical um, and quite not exactly static in terms of the obvious meaning of the word static because I bring mo- movement and motion into my my photography. But um, digital, but I, I shoot on a, a Hasselblad with a phase IQ 250 back and it's great. It's you know, it's a lovely combination, but it always looks digital. Now I'm using film. There's just a softness, and it's more editorial, and it's cooler, um, and just feels more human. And there's no there's no way you can get close to that feel uh, with digital, even though I'm using you know what, what you would probably call you know top of the industry spec medium format digital kit. Um, but I can't shoot film for probably 99% of my gigs because we need to see makeup, hair, fashion, lighting. Um, and sometimes the client will want the images that same day, you know, taken away on a small drive. And in answer to, you know, photography being everywhere, I think, you know, I think it is everywhere, but it's just, it's, about not spending too much time on Instagram or too much time on other websites and just, you know, and just working on your own projects. I think that's what I care about more. Um, I've been guilty, like probably most people are watching, you know, um, checking out too much Instagram, seeing what's being shot. And um, yeah, you can just get pulled down by it. And I think, that good photographers um, bring an artistic value into what they shoot. And I think if they don't, then, although we can't always put it into words, we, we can see it. And that's one of the beautiful things about taking pictures is we know uh, internally when it's right, when the picture's right. It's just something that's beautiful about the images. And then, then you've got it, you know, you've got the picture. Well, I spoke for a few hours last week with Peter Coulson, um, who's a fairly prolific fashion photographer based out in Australia. And he uh, is very much fixated on the, the lack of perfection and kind of the personality and rawness behind uh, 80s and 90s um, fashion photography. And I think... I was talking to him about it and essentially my idea or my my feeling about it was that the digital age mixed with Instagram's constant need for everyone to be seen in a certain way and people being incredibly stoic about how their self-image is portrayed has led to very clinical photos that lack maybe the rawness and the personality that you were getting in the 90s and 80s. And I actually think we're starting to kind of teeter over the edge of that and we're going to make our way back towards having more personality and more art and more imperfection in photography. I think there's a big movement on retouching, being scaled back in the commercial world. I think that film's having a bit of a resurgence. And I just think that people are maybe a bit sick of seeing images that don't necessarily come even close to what real life is on a day-to-day basis. Completely agree. Um, I think we're saturated with that whether it's composites in post-production, like in Photoshop or, you know, various kinds of manipulation. Um, and we know it. And I think you used a really, really relevant word there that is so important. And that's um, imperfections. And I think imperfections, when you really think about it, that's what's exciting about photography is when there are imperfections and there are I mean, I did a shoot with the um, creative director at ID a few years ago and we shot it for um, his his own magazine, um, which was launching in the States. And he talked to me, he was great. 
we'd previously done something for GHD together and he just talked to me about the imperfections and when he'd worked with um, Ellen Von Onworth and the importance of letting the imperfections come. And I think you're right that there, there is, I mean, I'm seeing it in the last two years anyway, fortunately, there's less retouching, certainly on skin and, you know, and I think people just want to see things that are relatable. I really do. And of course, we could probably talk for hours um, about you know the current situation that we're in, where you know with, with coronavirus, there's a lot of this UGC, you know, user-generated content, and that sort of strips it back as well into something less uh, digitized. But you know what? There's such a oh, there's two sides to it. There's the the relatable imperfection, and then there's the um, the really strong production value of various uh, illustration also brought into photography and things. I mean, you look at um, the beauty uh, magazine that Days brought out, I think last year, you know, that some of that is incredibly futuristic. Um, so, yeah, I think there's room for both, really. What's the difference in a in a directorial sense for you between video and stills? Um, I'm still finding my feet with the video, um, but I enjoy. I basically pretty much stopped filming on my shoot so that I can direct. I can direct the model. I can direct camera. So the, the, there's a huge difference in the headspace between stills and video. And I find it very difficult because sometimes we'll be shooting stills and then the client will want um, video on the same day. And that's absolutely fine. But I need, you know, two or three extra team in place to be able to pull that, you know, the moving image side off properly. So then they're not just, I mean, anyone can point a camera, um, but a model and film, but there needs to be a production value and the feel with the lighting and you've just got to work the lighting in a different way so i think they're, they're quite big different hats so certainly for me at, at the moment um and i went into filmmaking i don't know two about two years ago two and a half years ago and thought the transition would be easier but that's fine i'm, I'm still working working very hard at making that transition and, and i love it i feel in a fortunate position where I do call myself a photographer and a director, but you know, my show reel for, for motion it, it is still early days. Is one of the challenges trying to find your photographic voice and put it into your video voice, or do you want them to kind of exist as separate entities? I quite like the fact that when I shoot both in one day, we half the time we can make the film look quite different, and then the other half the time we got to make the film look. Um, just like the stills. So, yeah, and that's, I think, goes back to my original point about them being very different disciplines. And I've been guilty of being a photographer who's very focused on the image. What, you know, and I feel like I make short films that, you know, might be lit all right. And, you know, um, the model looks good, but they're, they're very image led and I'm, I'm working now on getting more of a, a narrative, a story. Uh, and I don't mean like a conventional story and certainly not like a five minute film. I think, you know, there's room still for 40 or 50 second films. That's, that's what excites me, but, um, they're very different ways of telling stories. And I think as a photographer, if you, if you start out as a photographer, it's hard to make that transition because you're just, you, you really are thinking about what the picture is. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just circle back to hair photography because it's something that very few people do and even less do well. In a, in a photographic sense, specifically, what are the challenges of hair photography compared to any other sort of beauty or fashion or portraiture? What is, what is the particular challenge of hair photography? Yeah, shooting hair does bring up a lot of challenges, um, primarily because you're, you're in very close for a lot of the work. Um, a lot of the pictures because the client wants to be able to see the colour, the shine, um, the straightness of the hair or the texture of the hair. So, you know, 
hair types, hair color, they all affect what the flash does. And we only really shoot hair with flash. I, lo- I love continuous lighting, um, you know, like big 6K ARRI lights and things, but you, you can't shoot hair for commercial. Well, you can, but it's difficult to shoot hair with anything other than flash. So with flash, you would just really need to understand where the light needs to be to keep the skin looking beautiful and real so you can still see the pores but then also most of the hair work is often quite you know there's shine in there um, that the client wants to see so yeah you 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 know when you're putting your lighting list together you're putting in certain attachments that help bring out shine that can add contrast um, without making it too too spotty by spotty i mean um, like a hard light and working something like the british hair awards I can't imagine you get a tremendous amount of time to do what you're doing, but, but what is the experience like? Yeah, British Hair Awards is pretty much its own own thing in a way um, because you're trying to get a minimum of eight or nine looks out of one day for, for the client. Um, some clients shoot over two days. Some some of them want one day, but you you know you've got to tell an entire story. And sometimes there's eight models, one day, eight looks. You know, all of them having hair and makeup, and you need to show that the you know the hairstylist can cut. So you need to have models that are allowed to have their hair cut. That they can do long commercial beautiful hair they can do texture so you're 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 putting on a hairdresser hat as well as a photographic hat and a storytelling hat and you know every winning collection has a concept um you know it doesn't need to be like a particularly certainly not a complicated concept and sometimes we We've shot in like a, a swimming pool and things for British Hair Awards and it hasn't finalised and then we reflect about it afterwards because, you know, the, the concept was was too complex. But, you know, if the co- concept's right, then, you know, you finalise and then you win. So it's a lot of, a lot of thought goes into each BHA. What do you, um, okay, so let's try and think of the best way to frame this because I don't want this to sound too broad, but what are the qualities that make a great model in your opinion? I think the the qualities of a really you know, strong professional model who will be busy are the key thing, certainly for newer models that I talk with them on set about, is if they can perform, and by perform I mean you know act and switch certain buttons in their in their mind in, in terms of you know acting um and not just doing what they see you know certain celebs do and things of the you know traditional model poses and all that stuff that we you know was about 10 15 years ago that's gone out of date now it's about just being more you know natural um and so you know if if it's you know if we got an issue of say what one of the vogues around or something we'll find a model in there um and we'll show we'll talk through the model in different shoots what what they're doing and and how and why and it really is making the mind connect with the body um because as soon as that happens and that's when you start to have the little you know the eyes really engage or the fingers might be slightly bent in a certain way. It's it's always the little things. And when the model is working too hard and trying too many things out, then invariably that's when it, you know, it doesn't go right. I mean, one of the things I've learned, especially speaking to people like yourself over the last few weeks, is it's, it feels like 90% of the work is attainable by everybody in the sense of like how to find the right people, how to learn how to use a camera. Like you said earlier, anyone can point the camera, how to put some lights up, but it's actually all of the small attentions to detail that take the very, very small minority of absolutely great photographers well away from the, the rest of us from from the sense of just being able to pick apart the smallest things, but it sets an image apart by such a huge factor, even though it seems like a small detail. 
Absolutely. And again, I think that's something that we know in our, you know, in our spirit, when we when we see the picture, we, we know that the nuances are are what fires us up, um, and it is it is the, the subtleties that, that really can can work. And then you know, it's my it's my role as a photographer to search those out, and if they're there from the start, when I start you know the first two or three frames with the model, then bosh, I know in the back of my head we can really you know go to places and try various things out. Whereas if they're, you know, like all of us, you know, the model might be, I've had a bad journey in or struggling a bit. That's my role to build them up and encourage them and just make a complete positive arena for them to try things out and us to go, go at it together and work really, really hard to get a picture. Photographically or otherwise, who is it that is inspiring you and where do you get your inspiration from? Good question. I'm getting a a huge amount of my inspiration at the moment um, from the garden and just nature's shapes and symmetry and asymmetry. Um, And just I'm reading some old gardening books. Um, Derek Jarman, who has his house, uh, well, you know, obviously he's passed away now, but you know he's got his house down in Dungeness, and that's you know he was a an artist, a filmmaker, a painter. So it's kind of looking at people like him who who deal work with different mediums, but also have a um, an honesty there, and um, so I find nature incredibly inspiring i watch a lot of films um i listen to music so i don't necessarily look at photography for inspiration um yeah i find it in other places does does that make sense absolutely i mean i'm a huge fan of cinema old and new for finding inspiration um who are so okay so what are some of your favorite films maybe that do inspire you or just in general have you seen Parasite, Chris? I have. It's it's a work of art. I mean, I haven't seen a film that knocked the shit out of me like Parasite did for years. Um, oof, I just masterpiece. Mm. Um, I know it obviously mopped up at the Oscars and rightly so. Thank God. Um, but yeah, I think Parasite was just unbelievably shot. Great storyline, um, challenging and, you know, Clever title, you know, you're, you're sat there at the end thinking, oh, am I the parasite that's just sat there and watched this? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's beautifully shot, wasn't it? Oh, it's, it's incredible. I love the um, the constant metaphor of, of height and sort of being lower on on the sort of totem pole. You know, the, almost the class system was constantly represented by stairways or hills. And, and I, just, I just think it was an absolute masterpiece. Completely agree. Have you, have you um, by any chance, have you seen uh, The Lighthouse? No, I'm desperate to. Um, Willem Dafoe, yeah? Mm, yeah, it's um, it's abstract to say the least, but in its presentation and both of them's performance is absolutely incredible. It's it's a wonderful, it's just a wonderful film. Okay, I need to check that. Um, obviously at the moment it's a bit tricky, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fun times. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, but... Yeah, hopefully we'll, um, we'll get back in there, but... I mean, just quickly on film, someone who I just have never experienced, and that that is the word, it's not just seen, but um, experienced cinema quite like it, it, is Terence Malick. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you seen any Terence Malick films? I'd have to actually probably Google it because I probably have and don't even realise it. So he did films like, I mean... Just to be, you know, straight from the start, you know, some of the, uh, they're, they're quite flawed in their own way, but visually mm-hmm. you'll never, ever, ever see anything as uh, amazing as um, Terence Malick films. He did The Tree of Life. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Which does go on a bit. Uh, I mean, my God, how that shot and the immediacy and the light, um, stunning, um, Thin Red Line, Badlands, um, you know, he really is 
uh, I think for photographers, he's someone who is just on a different, yeah, different plane. I really do. I think that um, I recently saw Neon Demon, which is okay. uh, Winding Refn, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn film, and his films as well. I mean, Neon Demon is a, is a bit of a hard watch because it's very, very, very slow. It's like goading you to stop watching it slow, but visually in terms of lighting and the the compositions of each sort of i wouldn't even say it has scenes it almost feels like it has set pieces and there's just a film kind of happening in the way of his it almost feels like he set up a photo but they won't stand still and stop reading lines it's it's a very bizarre film but he's got an incredible eye for composition and for visual metaphor um and neon demon is again it's very boring i would if i'm completely honest and if i was to meet him i'd probably be a bit scared to talk about it but it's it's a it's an absolutely beautiful film, but it is incredibly boring, but it's definitely worth watching for. And it has a wonderful metaphor for the fashion uh, photography and the fashion industry in general, because it's essentially about models eating younger models to sustain themselves. It's a very, it's a very bizarre film, but it's, it's, it's visually stunning. Do you know what? You're the second person to tell me about that recently. Um, the director that I work with, uh, William Boyd Kennedy, who is a, Fucking genius. Um, he talked to me about Neon Demon. So thank you for that re-recommendation, Chris. I have just written it down and I will watch it over bank holiday, bro. Um, because I think I downloaded it when, when he chatted about it, but I haven't seen it. It, it to me, uh, I just saw, you know, from what I remember, some of it looks like, a, you know, sort of various perfume adverts and things. Yes. Yeah. It, it basically, um, the scenes are set up. There's a, there's a casting scene for a catwalk show and it's the most ludicrous setup for a casting. It's got like, it's got like the lighting you'd expect to see when you first enter heaven. And it's in a warehouse that's completely immaculately clean and has just got miles of space all around. They choose to be in the middle of it, nowhere near the edges. And it's like, none of it makes sense in the sense of if you were to apply it to the real world, but it's it the whole film is a metaphor my wife absolutely hated it she could not stand it she was so bored and because she doesn't really uh, take any interest in in the fashion side of of photography or in general it was just something that she couldn't care less about but i think if if it's an industry that you work in or if it's an industry that you have an interest in in terms of being a metaphor the film itself is almost like this uh metaphor within a metaphor within a metaphor and there's there's parts of it that piss you off and parts of it that um make you feel certain ways and afterwards you realize that that was actually the intent because it's using you as part of the metaphor it's a it's a very clever film but there are there are dialogue scenes where it takes but, you know, sort of three or four minutes for three sentences to be spoken and in between nothing is happening. I like slow films. You're going to love it then. <laughs> I'm all over, I, you know, best slow um, film I've ever seen. is It's called Slow Story. Do you know Slow Story? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you, you ride over across America on a fucking lawnmower. Um, it's great. Um Really, really slow. Um, no, ch- check that. But yeah, no. It, so the director is um, Nicholas Wendin Red Refn. 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 Okay. Yeah, he did um, Drive. I think he also did Only God Forgives, which is visually fantastic, but a very again, it's another film. It's it's not as slow. It's it's a lot more. It's another film. You come away with more questions than answers, which actually is usually a pretty pretty good thing with films because it leaves you thinking about it beyond just kind of the film ends and you never think about it again absolutely and i think that's uh, again visually i i love um lynch david lynch you know he's an obvious one but mm. a lot to think about there and uh, so to kind of wrap up i've got a couple of questions left and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your day in terms of ambitions moving forward you're in a position right now where you've worked with some absolutely enormous worldwide brands and you are doing what so many photographers wish they were doing. How do you stay ambitious and what are your ambitions moving forward? Um, I think I'm hugely, hugely hungry um, to always be taking pictures and making films. And I think with whatever it is that you do, 
in your life, you've just got to have that hunger and that drive that whatever it is gets you out of bed before anyone else, or you know, you just check your email, <laughs> whatever it is like you know, last thing in the evening, because invariably there's something that you need to answer, or certainly you know, day or two before a shoot, there's so much to do. Um, sorry, Chris, you repeat the question again. I've gone off on this tangent. <laughs> no, no, you're okay. It's just basically because you're in a position that so many people wish they were in with the brands that you've worked with and the work that you do, um, how do you stay ambitious and what are your ambitions moving forward? I want to be making more more films, um, maybe even music films. Um, I'm seeing some pretty incredible directors uh, coming through, certainly music directors who translate pretty well to fashion and beauty. Um, so, yeah, I think it is just about keeping and staying hungry and you know feeding that burning drive in, inside of you. And if that burning drive is to make pictures and films, then you know, you've got to feed it and set up personal shoots. Um, even if... You know, I, I, after Jim, I had a great first assistant called Gareth, who was with me for about four years, I think. And Gareth was with Merton Marcus, um, two of the biggest fashion guys, really, um, for five years. And Gareth taught me a lot, you know, just about when you do your personal work, that even if you just get one or two pictures from it, that are good for the book that's enough because i always try and get as much as i can from each shoot and i'm guilty of that but i need to learn and understand how and when to step back but in terms of it's hard when you're very ambitious and you want that picture to connect because i think we all we all take and make pictures for a reason and that is, you know, we want connection um, and we know what connection feels like. And I think that helps drive ambition, that, that continual search for a connection or a moment, a feeling, a touch. And we, we we know what it looks like, but again, it's very hard to put into words. And that I think is ambition enough. And it's it's you know I th- I, f- I feel very fortunate that we're in careers that revolve around um, passion and beauty, um, proximity. You know, getting close to stories, situations, people. Um, it, it's lovely. It's, it's a, and I think it's about creating beautiful art. And, and, you know, if you're hungry for that, then the ambition will come naturally. It's been incredibly insightful to talk to you. I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on. Uh, what we always do at the end of these is make sure that people know where they can then go and look up your work or follow you um, and, and see what it is that you do um, who maybe weren't aware of you before. So if you could just tell us your website and your social media links. Sure. Um, my website is um, www.jackeams.com. Uh, uh, com. So it's J-A-C-K. E-A-M-E-S dot com. And your social media? So my Instagram is Jack Eames Photo. And I don't have, well, I think I have a Twitter account, but we don't use it. Um, and Facebook don't really use. So just use the website. We've got, do you know what we do with the website? We've got a live, um, we keep it pretty up to date, uh, blog news section so there's some nice sort of behind the scenes stuff of what we get up to there amazing thank you so much for coming on wicked chris good speech bro i am so good at pretending keep on smiling in my tiny bubble like a movie without ending spending time like it was going backwards 
Discovering I was but they fall 